You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah wa kafa. Wassalatu wassalamu ala ibadi alladhina astafa wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yawmin al-jazaa. Wa ba'd. That uh, we welcome all our esteemed listeners right here on Marcus Sahaba. Voice of the Ahlu Sunnah on this particular segment of Legal Eagle where we will be discussing all things legal and then also for the first time on the airwaves of Marcus Sahaba where we bring you top content you know that we have our esteemed guest tonight uh, who just flew in and just landed in South Africa and uh, we hardly gave him time to rest he's still sitting here and uh, he still needs to to take a break in and do whatever he needs to do to make himself comfortable but we managed to get hold of him and uh, to some people, he will need no introduction. To those who do not know him, his name is Muazzam Beg from uh, the UK, all the way from the UK. So, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. That uh, Muazzam, uh, you know, that uh, we brought you here to do a special interview. Uh, welcome our listeners and uh, give us a little bit introduction about yourself. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sheikh, it's my pleasure and honor to be here uh, in this uh, wonderful town. Uh, with you all. Um, alhamdulillah, I've been to South Africa a few times, but I think it's the first time we're having a, an interview like this. So this is an exclusive for you as well as it is for me. Um, alhamdulillah, I've actually just flown in from Kabul, um, where I was for a few weeks, and we, myself and others, were working on, on uh, the case of some of the former Guantanamo prisoners who are still held, the Afghans who are still held in Guantanamo, and specifically on Afia Siddiqui's case, who, as you know, her case focuses very much in Afghanistan, her time in Bagram, mm. her detention uh, by the Afghan National Police and the Americans in Ghazni, and then what happened, or what allegedly happened, and then she was taken. So all of that is part of what I've been trying to do in my visit uh, to Kabul. MashaAllah, so you've just returned from Kabul. You know, there's many people I've met that would really love to visit Afghanistan. I think they see it as a future place destination for them. Uh, because of uh, the Islamic uh, empire, uh, where they can physically practice Islam without any restrictions. But uh, you are quite busy. You also uh, engage in many, many other things. And you also run your own organization called CAGE. Would you like to share that with the viewers and uh, our listeners, especially with it? What does it entail? Do uh, you know the success rate in people that uh, you help in cases that you come across, uh, things like that? Just share some of the information with our uh, esteemed listeners. Yes, yeah, so I'm uh, now one of the senior directors at CAGE, so I have less of a role with the organization as I used to before. But essentially the organization was set up uh, to campaign for the release of the 779 prisoners who were held in Guantanamo without charge or trial. Slowly over time, as those prisoners began to be released, we started focusing on laws that were affecting Muslims in the UK and then beyond in other countries. And now we offer dif- different types of campaign advice, legal advice to different types of people, whether it's somebody being arrested for holding a Palestinian flag for protesting outside the Israeli embassy, whether it's somebody who's been detained by the Americans for 20 years and tortured in a secret detention site. We deal with everything, with both and everything in between. And Alhamdulillah, we say success rates. Um, just last week, a brother returned to Afghanistan after 22 years absence uh, 14 of those in Guantanamo and seven in Oman, where he was resettled. We call that a success story. Uh, there was another, Asadullah Harun, who's now a very good friend of mine, 
He was released from Guantanamo last year. We call that a success story after 20 years imprisonment. Uh, Sufyan Barhoumi was released from uh, Guantanamo to Algeria. He's a good friend of mine. After 20 years, we say that's a success story. So how many, how many prisoners are there still in Guantanamo Bay? Uh, for those who don't know Guantanamo Bay, it's a U.S. detention center where they normally take people and uh, deport them and keep them there. <laughs> Are often without trial, proper trial in proper legal procedures and uh, litigation, and they'll just pass judgment and they'll sentence you until they feel comfortable. That is for the listeners who do not know what and who is Guantanamo Bay. So currently, uh, uh, the amount of inmates still in Guantanamo Bay. So, so as a former prisoner myself of, at Guantanamo, um, I can tell you that uh, actually there is no legal process in Guantanamo. Nobody is sentenced in Guantanamo. There is no judge, no jury, no defense, no prosecution. There is just the fact that you're held by the US military, which uh, instituted that place uh, shortly after the September 11th attacks, where they claimed they wanted to hold those responsible um, and, and bring them to justice. But after 22 years, not a single person has been convicted for their involvement in the 9-11 attacks, not a single person. After 22 after years? After 22 years, not a single person has been convicted. Um, the, most of the prisoners from Guantanamo have been released without any legal process. They get released as a result of discussions and agreements between governments. Sometimes people get sent to places where they have no connection. For example, Uyghurs. Um, there were 22 of them in Guantanamo. They were sent to uh, El Salvador, Bermuda, Palau, Albania, all of these far off and wide countries because of the fear of the threat of China. Uh, so it is important that your listeners understand that Guantanamo is literally outside of the law. That's why they took them to Guantanamo. Guantanamo is on Cuba, and Cuba has always traditionally been an enemy of the United States. Yet the U.S. has always had a base there for 100 years, and they decided to put the Muslim prisoners there who brought the first ever Adhan and Salah and all the Islamic rites and rituals to this place. Um, and there's now 30 left, uh, and we are fighting to get them all either repatriated or released. So you, you never had access to any legal recourse, legal representation, or you, besides you, any other prisoner there, like here people get legal aid, uh, they get state lawyers uh, to mm. fight their case, etc. Uh, having heard from you directly in the paper now, uh, that, that place is above the law, so I can just imagine that uh, you've completely gone and forgotten, uh, cut off from the entire to, uh, judicial world. To give you an idea. To give you an idea, if a person commits a crime in any Western nation, um, let's say murder, uh, that person has the right to remain silent, that person has the right to legal representation, has the right to visitation, has the right to study, has all of these rights, and, and the right to a, a speedy trial. The Guantanamo prisoners don't have any of those rights. They don't even have the right to habeas corpus. They don't have that right. Now, lawyers have been allowed in uh, just to fight to see if this person can get any and any legal um, sort of representation in the courts. But the courts don't exist there. The only thing there is a military commission, and that's for certain people, uh, which, we, which has been described by uh, senior judges, including a South African judge, as a kangaroo court. Mm. Now, that's the America. This is not uh, some third it's world nation. It's America, the land of the free and democracy, democracy and all that nonsense. Um, so that is Guantanamo. You, there are brothers there in Guantanamo who've never seen their relatives in the last 20 years. No visit. Visits are not allowed. Their parents have died. Some, uh, some of them, their children have died. Their wives have died or divorced and moved on. They have had no visit. And if you were a convicted 
killer, murderer, rapist, child rapist in America, you get all those rights of visitation. Mm. Um, so it's important people understand this dis distinction. And you are by necessity innocent uh, until proven guilty. That's what the law of all Western nations say. You and need quite, to go through a process yeah, yeah. until you're proven guilty. But here you are already guilty. And the proof of that is that you have no way out. Mm. You're already serving. So the idea, you haven't been sentenced. You just don't have a release date. And there's no need to prove your innocence also because they found you guilty. They have already stated that they can hold you as long as they want. And that's what they have done. I, I just heard about 20 years, 21 years. Mm -hmm. So there is periods here, 48 hours, uh, not more than 48 hours, they're supposed to give you, uh, they're supposed to charge you or to release you. These are normal civil courts operate, you know, but this is, of course, this is above the law. Yes. So we're sitting with about 30 uh, of our, our brethren. Yes. They're still uh, incarcerated. Indeed. I've seen footage of two people who were released, mm -hmm. I think, last week. Yes. Uh, one Alim and another person. And they were so happy to get off the plane mm. and uh, being back in their home country, Afghanistan. And the people were quite, uh, you know, they were quite... Uh... So, so let me give you some of this. And Afghanistan is very unique in how it, how it receives uh, former Guantanamo prisoners. Even at the time of the American occupation, when some Afghans were released. And Afghans mm. constituted the largest number of prisoners in Guantanamo. But when they were released, even at the time of Hamid Karzai, who was the, the leader... Mm, the former. Before, before Ashraf Ghani, mm. um, they would return to a hero's welcome by the locals. The locals would put pictures up of them, flowers around their necks, uh, bring food, visit them. And this was, uh, so I went to go and visit one of these brothers that you mentioned who returned after 22 years, Abdul Zahir. And, I saw the, the mean yeah. garland. So if you, as soon as you come out of Kabul airport, and this is unusual because they don't normally pick pictures of anybody up in Afghanistan, but they had put pictures of these guys and written the stories of what had happened. The, the moment you come out of the airport, you see the, the images, the, mm. the pictures. And so when they came, they were greeted, first of all, by the Guantanamo prisoners, by all of the leadership, uh, many of whom were in Guantanamo themselves. And then they were uh, kind of taken as, as heroes returning mm. to their country, which is in vast contrast to how many people, when they return from Guantanamo to their own lands, whether it's Algerians, even some of us British, mm. we go straight into a prison cell, straight into a police cell. Um, but here it's the total opposite. Here you're you're received as a man yes, of honor, know. as an honor, an honorable person. Someone who did duty. Yeah, someone who did duty and someone who suffered um, as an innocent person and should be now honored. So that's why they're putting up the posters and pictures. Yes. And sort of crystallizing the history so that people should never forget them. Exactly. And I went to his house, one of them, he lives in a, in a small village house, in a mud house actually. Um, but he had guests coming day and night for for three weeks, and it's not going to stop. People from all over the country are coming just to see him, just to kiss his hand. I can imagine they're quite elated. Yeah. So how, 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 for us, you know, people who hasn't been to Afghanistan yet, uh, and you've been there a couple of times, times you've yes. been uh, all over the globe, you know. So now post this, uh, uh, the, post the war, what is it, two, two years now? Yes. Since uh, they won the war against America, mm -hmm. uh, do you think that Afghanistan is more stable now uh, compared to the time when uh, Mullah Omar well, was still alive? Uh, I'm going to give you an example. So, in the first time I went, the first time I went to Afghanistan after it fell to the Taliban, I went with a guy called Mike, an English, uh, uh, an Irish guy, who'd lived in Afghanistan for five years during the Republic, the time of uh, Ashraf Ghani and so forth. Yes. And he's a fluent Farsi speaker, so he can get, around, get by better than I can. Yes. I get by with Urdu and Arabic, but um, 
So he said to me something which really told me what I wanted to understand. He said, this is the safest I've ever been as a cameraman to be able to film anywhere I want. I've never, it's never been this safe. And currently now. Currently now. And he said, I've never been able, because he got, we got permission to film and he could film anywhere he wanted to, whatever he wanted to. Um, and even when we get stopped and I, I've gone around the city many times, there are plenty of checkpoints, but the soldiers and the guards, they'll say, they'll, when they, they'll stop you with a smile and they say, Khafanist, which in, which mean, in Pashto means, please don't be upset, please don't mind. Mm. Imagine, a, you know, a checkpoint, people talking to you like that. That's how they are with everybody. Yeah, we're not used to that. We're not used to that anyway. It's coming from apartheid is uh, South Africa yes. and uh, experiencing checkpoints last year in uh, in uh, apartheid Israel as well. Yes. You're treated like a third grade like citizen. Like a third grade citizen, exactly. Like you don't exist, you have no. no rights. I mean, we were literally caged last year uh, because the bus was overloaded in Israel. Yeah. A 50-seater bus with 20 people, they called it overload. And then made st- uh, we were made to stay in one hour in the sun burning 42 degrees just to be put on a bus again and say, oh, there's nothing wrong. So it is uh, the, the No, here, you know. here what they'll do, and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're a non-Muslim, in fact, they're very honorable. I, I had my, my, the, my lawyer, Clive Stafford-Smith, who I first met him in solitary confinement in Guantanamo, he's now coming with me regularly to Afghanistan to help to get the other Afghan prisoners released and to get Afia released, which we'll talk about, yes. Afia Siddiqui. But we walk around the streets of Kabul together and people are so hospitable to, towards him. He's come away from there saying that I, I've been to all these Muslim countries, to Oman and to Qatar and Pakistan, and they all have in their own rights, they're all up there, decent people there. He said, but I've never seen a people that are so hospitable and so loving and kind and caring and who have very little to begin with. And that's one of the things Afghanistan is a very poor country. Those of us who come from more stable, richer backgrounds, I think we should go there. I do encourage people to go there to visit, to invest. To that will be my next question for none. Yeah. Uh, you know, people coming from, from uh, non-Islamic countries like us hmm. that uh, wants to settle there. Many people have expressed their desire yeah. to go and stay there, but I don't think that people are ready to adopt Sharia as their rule of law. That's I, another thing. So I don't think the problem is Sharia. Sharia is very easy. It's very simple. And people, they live it there all, all, all day long, and many of them don't even agree with the Taliban, hmm. but they live there and they're okay. The problem is not Sharia, I, I think, you know, generally it's... No, the, for citizens coming from, from non-Muslim oh, countries, like from Western countries, yeah. for them to, to adopt and uh, to make a move, a hijrah from mm. here till they say, leaving South Africa to go and stay there. I think the problem is that if, if, if Afghanistan was a very rich country and it offered all the things, all the nice creature comforts here, yeah, then probably people would say, I don't care if Sharia or not Sharia, I'm going to live there because it's economically viable for me. Um, I, I think it's because it's hard. It's mm. hard. It's, it's a tough life. You have to start to get to use the things that would, you know, what you take for granted over here is not you don't take for granted. You, you take electricity for granted over here. You take Wi-Fi for granted over, there, uh, over here. Over there, you've got to deal with what you do if you don't get it. There's electricity blackouts regularly. There's different types of food. There's different types of people. There's the, the toilets are not clean. Anything yeah. that you can think about what you think I of. I think pre- South Africans can relate. We also have load shedding here, we also have electricity blackout. Mm. We are paying taxes, we have mismanagement. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're even illiterate governments, so what do you expect when you have illiterate But government? you know, one of the, you said about the Sharia, one of the amazing things about Sharia, you see, is that you're safe. Yes. And that's what the part people don't, is that you're safe. You can, if you leave, you know, my, my lawyer, Clive Stafford-Smith, you know, he left $2,000 in, yeah. um, in, in his uh, bag. In, in, in his hotel in, in Islamabad and it was stolen. 
in Islamabad. In Islamabad, you know, the land, the, 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 the city of Islam, right? That's what it yes. means. He comes to Afghanistan and uh, he said, I've, left, I've done this before in Afghanistan, it's never happened. I said, it won't happen in Afghanistan because the Sharia exists here. People don't want to steal and they're afraid of what happens if you do. It's most likely that most people are so poor that if they did steal, the hud wouldn't be applied upon them, right? Mm. The, the punishment wouldn't be because they're so poor. Yes. But it's just the concept that your leadership is not corrupt. Your leadership isn't building homes in Europe. Mm. Your leadership hasn't got uh, lots of money that they've siphoned from the from the government, and they've. Invested in, in fact, there's a. The, in the, islands, the, Cayman the, Islands. Exactly. In fact, they're very very strict, and that's because of the the, the system that they're part of. Everybody's accountable for every penny. And I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen that kind of accountability. Um, in, in the UK where I come, there's this famous thing of MPs' expenses where for a different, they have two houses, three houses, spending 50,000 pounds on fixing a tap. Same you know, thing we have here. Yeah. House in every province, and then you have the Blue Brigade also, yeah. specific vehicles. So this kind and of thing. Taxpayers' money. This kind of thing, they, they're not allowed to personally benefit from their role as a governor or a minister in the country. They're just not allowed. And I think to myself, is that what the world's afraid of? Mm. They're afraid somehow of leaders being accountable, leaders being like Umar al-Khattab and Uthman and Ali anhum. Is that what they're afraid of? That they might somehow be people who you could look up to and say, yes, now I, I realize what a, what a leader should be like. He's just one of the people. He's serving the people. He's not here to be served by the people. I think I, I think I agree, and that's why these leaders were assassinated. All for Khulafa, basically, they were yeah. assassinated because of, of bringing justice and peace and tranquility to its yeah. citizens. They don't want people to live in peace because uh, then they will be ousted. So they need chaos, they need to divide people so that they can rule over people. Yes. So uh, uh, Afghanistan definitely is worth. We've yeah. also been to other Islamic countries like Syria, and, uh, in the past, yes. In the past, yes, you've been yes, there yes, as well. Uh, any any specific uh, uh, mentioning of Syria? So, uh, so I was in Syria during the war, 2012-2013, you know, when the early days when the, uh, the rebellion or the, the fight against Bashar al-Assad began, and the, the, the various groups had united and they were uh, had a singular purpose. And then, of course, as you know, ISIS came along and uh, everything changed. And uh, the great lesson of that is that you had a direction, a vision. The vision was to remove the oppressor and the oppression. And they came along and said that we want to establish an Islamic state. And if you don't join us, then you're out of the fold of Islam. And essentially, that's what happened. And it turned away the direction entirely. And all the, uh, all the focus then turned, the world's focus, in fact, turned upon that group. Uh, and we saw anti-lateral legislation passed in the UK and elsewhere where with a one big brush, they sweep everybody. If you're a beard, if you believe in Islam, believe in Jihad, believe in Khilafah, any of those things, you're just the same as In the UK? Yeah, of course. They, you know, the UK has had a new anti-terror law passed every year, which almost exclusively targets Muslims. So this is something that we also as an organization and as a movement have had to contend with, offer legal advice, defend cases where it's necessary, uh, media debates, university debates. We do all, try to change or to shape public opinion, which is not easy when we're a minority who are constantly getting attacked. What type of legal laws are we speaking about? I know South Africa is heading uh, in charting a similar, in plotting a similar path 
to the rest of the world, we, we, we have a propo proposed Bible where the youth citizens inspire one another and then uh, the anti-secrecy bill and so many other bills mm. that still need to be uh, adopted and enacted. So we're fighting that through our petitions, etc. But in the UK, I mean that uh, it's supposed to be a civilized country. You're supposed to have freedom, democracy, everything is there, the hierarchy is there. So uh, what type of, you know, when we speak about these type of things, yeah. what type of, of anti-terror laws and how is it specifically directed at uh, the Muslim population? Well, you know, straight after 9-11, there was anti emergency anti-terror legislation and by which they were allowed to detain people without charge or trial. And that, that's something I know has happened in apartheid South Africa before. You could hold people up to six months without trial. Yes. So in, in the UK, they held 16 North African and Middle Eastern uh, Muslim brothers for three years without charge or trial. Again, now this is the land of habeas corpus, Magna Carta, yes. laws, and now you're holding people without charge or trial based on secret evidence that they cannot challenge. So there was all this going on, and then there was, um, they had house arrest laws, which was called control orders. Again, they only applied them to Muslims. And then again, you had laws like the Glorification of Terrorism Act, where if somebody writes something, said something, a young girl, her name was Samina Malik, she writes a poem in praise of Mujahideen in uh, 2008, 2009. She gets imprisoned for writing poetry, which is seen to glorify terrorism. So again, now this is the land of Shakespeare, where they imprison people mm. for writing poetry. Right? It's ridiculous. Exactly. But it's okay. it, it, this happens when it comes to Muslims. So we've tried to challenge all of that. Eventually, that case was challenged. She did her case was quashed, but she spent ten months in prison for that. Um, and then there's something called prevent, which is essentially a government tool whereby they can force teachers, uh, lecturers, doctors, prison guards, etc., to spy upon Muslims and to report it to the government. Mm. And how do they spy and what do they report? Uh, is that person now, who didn't have a beard, are they now growing a beard? Is she putting on a hijab? Are they talking about politics? Are they talking about Palestine? If so, these are all markers to becoming an extremist. And that's some of the things, the legislation that's come in, that uh, Muslims are being disproportionately, at, uh, even getting stopped at airports. Mm. Muslims are 42 times more likely to get stopped at an airport than any other group in the country. And one report found at Cambridge University that 86% of people stopped at airports for questioning and um, interrogation and strip search uh, were Muslims. Mm -hmm. And Muslims are about 5% of the whole population. So it tells you like the state of how... Of fear. Of fear. It's basically Muslim. fear from yeah. the government side. Yeah. They they're calling it prevent. We have a similar thing happening here in, in the Western Cape. Yeah. where uh, it, it is illegal to display anything that has to do with Palestine. Palestinian flags, um, murals, anything that you want to display, uh, law enforcement will come and they will remove it. And if you put up a fight, etc., they will arrest you. Mm. So they, because it's a Zionist government, it, the Western Cape is run independently from the rest of oh, South Africa, yeah, at least internally or originally. Yeah. So we have that problem. Yeah. So this there. is something that's happening in the UK. There have been yes. so many arrests for so many people, little old ladies who carry. But it's petty flags. things. It's not it's even petty. a crime. Yes. Uh, real criminals they get away with, 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 with genocide. Yes. Real criminals get away with genocide. But, like what's happening yeah. in in, exactly. uh, in in that side of the yeah. world now. Exactly. Uh, so uh, coming back, you know that uh, we have a figure here that I think since my time when I studied, uh, her name came up, Afia Siddiqui, mm. and somehow the Islamic world either forgot, not the entire Islamic world, but parts of the Islamic world forgot about her, forgot about her plight and her cause, 
and, uh, and, and, and the media played a role in this by squashing and uh, deleting and omitting anything. Wherever she's mentioned, then uh, because they control everything, they uh, sort of uh, erase it. They want to erase her from our memories as well. Uh, what is the current state? What is her current state? She's been incarcerated for how long now? So she's been incarcerated now since 2008. From that time till now, um, she's been in prison in FMC Coswell, which is in Texas. Mm. She's in a women's only prison at the moment. Um, Clive Stafford Smith, my lawyer, who I mentioned earlier, he's also now representing her. Mm. He has represented before, representing 80 Guantanamo prisoners. He rep represented scores of prisoners on US death row prisons. Mm. And he says, and I quote him, that out of the 10,200 women prisoners in America, Afia's situation and treatment has been the worst. Uh, Afia has been sexually violated, physically raped twice. She has been beaten. She has been shot. She has lost one of her children. She has not seen her other two children since they were since she was taken from them. Her, uh, she was held in the Bagram detention facility for five years. I was held there for one year. Mm. So you can imagine how terrible that was. Um, and she's been manhandled and mishandled and. I would say she's probably the most oppressed prisoner in the world. In the world today. Um, our role, you said that people have forgotten her, and that is quite true. There are many people, however, in Pakistan who have been campaigning for her, many Muslims. Indeed, even here there have been demonstrations, and constantly people, whenever I come to South Africa, and I've been several times, the first thing people, the Muslims here, ask me about is Afi Sabiki. The first thing. Mm. So I know that she's not forgotten in this community here, though there's no tangible link other than that of That's why we deep. brought you on Marcus Sahaba, uh, voice of the Ahlul Sunnah, because of that. Yeah, uh, I thought it would be better to, to highlight a plight than you. Yeah, and I know that Afi would be extremely, extremely um, happy and... Yeah, we don't have the news for reach so, so, the world is speaking about the still mentioning So it. part of our work has been now to reinvigorate that discussion, especially mm. because now we are uncovering new information that has not been heard before, new witnesses that have never been spoken to. And these are all who were present in uh, people who were next to her in prison. We've got witness testimony from them who saw her, who spoke to her. We didn't have that before. Um, previously, she didn't get good legal representation. They didn't do all these investigations. And we've also got series, I mean, several witnesses who saw her after she was released for a short period. She was told after she was released from Bagram, when she was freed from Bagram, that if you want your daughter back, and now this is how traumatizing this is, mm. she's already separated from her two kids, one mm. kid has died. If you want your daughter back, come to this place in Ghazni, to this mosque. So she goes there and she sits and waits, and somebody set her up, mm. but she doesn't realize it. And the only thing between her and death at this moment is this hero, who's a, uh, a tailor. Mm. He's sitting across watching this woman waiting, he realized Ghazni is a very conservative place. A woman shouldn't be there by herself after dark. Um, and she's waiting there. So he comes along because he speaks Urdu. And he says, sister, please, can you go to my mother's house? It's over here. Not good to be here at dark. While he's talking to her, she gets surrounded by a bunch of cars. And out step 10 or 12 guys, all armed from the police. And they point guns to her. And they start a shout out in Farsi, Pakistani khudkushi bombara, Pakistani suicide bomber. So now somebody's told them that she's a suicide bomber. She just come out of prison mm. and they want to shoot her. This tailor gets in between. And, he and he's a local. To, and he's a local. And he starts to fight them off. And then they beat him with butts of rifles. Eventually they rip off her hijab. 
and then they take her away. And he's incensed because he's a Pashtun who has a lot of honor. And she's taken away and eventually she's taken to this police station. And in that police station, this incident occurred where Americans claim, and this claim was never put to the test, Mm. that she tried to grab a gun and shoot the Americans. The Americans then responded and shot her. That's what they claim. And that's why Afia Siddiqui is in prison. She's in prison not because she shot somebody, but because somebody shot her. She's doing 86 years. Now, I've met several people who killed American soldiers mm. who are walking free. So 86 why, years. 86 it's years. It's in a federal court. It's in a federal court. So we're trying to uncover all of that, get witnesses, and we've got witnesses to say that what happened in that police station, Afia never shot anyone. She never grabbed any gun. And how is it possible, I mean, a woman at her age, and uh, you have all these so-called bodybuilders and strong men, Rijal, with guns. How does, what, what well, training did she have? That, Formal training, uh, you know, like Canada's training or firearm training or something. You can't, so, uh, you, the way you describe it, it was most probably uh, automatic uh, hmm. type of, uh, of so, weapons. So that's a really, really good question. So let me explain to you how. Generally, uh, an American soldier, not generally, an American soldier will not relinquish his weapon. He will not leave it, leave it lying around. And I know, I know this from personal experience, but not in 22 years of the war on terror, not in Iraq or Afghanistan or Guantanamo or anywhere else, did a brother, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, or any of these great Rijal, as you said, get a single opportunity to grab an American weapon. And if they could, they would have, but they never did. Yet Afia Siddiqui somehow get, does. And they claim that he just left his weapon by the side. And let's say... Is it's a violation in its own. Yeah, You're not supposed to leave your, yeah, your exactly. weapon unattended. But let's just say she had some training in Afghanistan. Let's just, for argument's sake, well, they only had... Uh, Kalashnikovs there. How does she know mm. where's the safety catch on an M4 rifle? Mm. How does she know where to cock it? How does she know any of its system? How does she even know there's a bullet in the magazine? How does she know any of that stuff? Mm. So none of that was tested. But beyond that, the uh, the video evidence that was shown before of bullets uh, being in the hole that they claim she shot, we have video evidence to say those bullet holes were there before she even came. Mm. Bullets get fired in Afghanistan all the time. It's, that's what happens. It's like fireworks. It's like fireworks. So we have got testimony, we've got testimony from the governor of Kabul, the former governor, who's given us some details about, that will help Afia. Uh, we've got several people, inshallah. So we think that we, from our next trip, when we go, we will have more. We will have a solid case, inshallah, to get her uh, inshallah, we to also get out. You mentioned 86 years. 86 years. So that's 86 years without the possibility of parole. Yes, we believe so. I don't, I mean, 86 years is... You know that it's it's basically a life sentence. It's it's more than a life sentence, and it's simply not. You know those people who get convicted in America of uh, attempted murder normally do five years. I don't understand why she's doing eighty-six years. I still don't understand to this day. You've mentioned the trauma that she underwent, being physically raped, etc. What about the trauma of uh, of uh, next of kin, her family, uh, extended family? I mean, they've so, been spending yeah. thousands of dollars in. So, you know, Sheikh, you know every, 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 there, there's every, another part of the story we've been investigating that really is really horrifying, and that is her children. Mm-hmm. So Ahmed Siddiqui, as a young six-year-old kid, was put into a prison. He was put into prison in Afghanistan. Six-year-old. And he remained there for the next five years. Uh, Maryam was held in a, an orphanage, and now here, listen to this part. There were two individuals, uh, they're known as Josh and Natalie who are evangelist Christians, I believe, who'd come and they took her and lived with her and tried to, I don't know what, Christianize her or whatever, but I think they thought that they've come to save this girl. 
it's better for her to grow up as an American Christian than as a Pakistani Muslim. So she stayed with them for several years. And we found now recently there's another case, actually you can find it on the internet if you, if you search it, that they tried to do this with another Afghan child and they brought that Afghan child to America. Mm. So they had formed, they, this is what they were trying to do. So this is what happened to Afia's kids. Eventually she was able to get back the one, but the whole reason why she went to Ghazni and sits in front of that mosque in the first place is she's told, if you go there, you'll get your daughter. But what really happened is somebody set her up and wanted to have her shot because the, what had happened is Afia's movement had become so strong by that time it was embarrassing the Pakistani government who were the ones who handed her over in the first place. And had it not been for that tailor, she'd have been dead. Yes. She'd have been dead. And that tailor, as a result of what happened, he joined the Mujahideen. So one of the children passed away? One of the youngest, yeah, the youngest child, Suleiman, we believe, has passed away. And the rest are in? The rest now, now they've grown up. Um, one of, um, Ahmed is a doctor now. Um, yeah, but they're deeply, deeply traumatized. It's scarred for life. For life. You can just imagine. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'd like to say is that um, this is by the Qatar of Allah that I met you because this is the first time I'm talking about this in any media anywhere. It's the first time I'm, 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 I'm hearing yeah. anyone speaking about it. It's the first time we've ever, I've ever spoken about the whole Ghazni story and about, uh, yes. that, about those witnesses. So it's, it's very apt. So, so the, oh, there's hope, of course, that she will be released. Uh, is there a time frame attached to this particular? Um, you know, I mean, you speak about experience, you, your lawyers well yes. versed in experience in, in, in getting Indeed. detainees Indeed. out of detention centers. This case as, as, lies as much in its political um, sphere as much as it does the legal. We may be able to prove all the legal stuff and say that the judges were lied to, hmm. but the evidence wasn't presented the way it should have been, and she should never have got convicted. And even if she, let's say she got convicted, she should certainly never have got more than five years. You know, um, so we hope that that can be done. But then there's the political part of it, because who handed her over in the first place? Mm. And that was the Pakistani government, who's been the greatest problem in allow, allowing her at least to be repatriated. Yes, Pakistani government. Which was the Pakistani government. And we need to tell them that you know one of the saddest things about this also is Afia is almost you know she's no longer the same person. She's mm. she's gone through so much. She just wants to be home. That's it. She wants to live the last few years. She's probably got left. Her mother passed away, and I met her mother no, a few no. years ago. And her mother was always fighting for her, and she passed away now. And it's really... It, it, Afia's been attacked several times. She's very small, very petite, four mm. foot something. And that's another reason why I think, uh, how could she threaten an American soldier? Because again, be... Exactly. She's been beaten up by other prisoners, smashed in the face, burnt uh, hot oil, um, tea thrown in her face. It, she's really had a very, very difficult time. And uh, it is a shame for the whole ummah particularly in Pakistan because of what they've done, but the whole ummah that she remains here and uh, in prison and nothing is done. From the Islamic countries, who's advocating for a release? To be honest with you, the only people I've come across who've openly and directly uh, advocated for the release is the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. No one else? Nobody else. People, that's why I said initially when we started, I said the world is forgotten. When we say the world is forgotten, we're speaking about governments, I, I not the citizens. Citizens don't forget. I spoke to Imran Khan about Afia's case personally before, mm. before he became Prime Minister. And he was very, very involved at that time. But when he became Prime Minister, unfortunately, uh, if it was behind the scenes, he may have, I don't know, but I don't know of anything happening. So that's it. So other than that, there was no top level intervention for a release? There's not, I mean, it's not even a release. If, because she has a a, a, um, a sentence upon her, that sentence either has to be commuted or or something has to happen mm. with that sentence. 
but the Americans can agree that she goes back home to serve her sentence. Mm. And then Pakistan can do whatever it likes with that, right? She can mm. even hire house arrest or whatever it is. But Pakistan hasn't done that, hasn't initiated something like that. And that's Why don't they extradite it? It was my next question. And send her back to her home country to serve the rest of her? Well, I think the way the law works in America is that if you commit a crime in America, you have to serve that crime unless there's an agreement with another government. And that's mm. the problem, is that Pakistan could make that agreement, but it has to be a bilateral agreement between mm. two countries. And that also they have to prove she committed a crime in America, um, which they well, sort of fabricated. No, that's another subject. That's, that's yes. a really important subject because, as I said, I've met people who killed American soldiers mm. now who are now free in, in Afghanistan. They're free. The war's over. Mm. And uh, so what kind of a crime was it? Why aren't you seeking that person to be sent to your country? And the truth is because it was a war and it's over. Mm. So in the same way, what jurisdiction does America have over a Pakistani woman in Afghanistan. Exactly. And this is what I spoke to the Afghans about. I said, surely, well, you should demand that she comes here mm. and serves the sentence, if there's anyone to be served, or be retried here. But of course, America is the world's policeman, the world's judge. The world's watchdog also, yeah. pulling every other nation into submitting to the yeah, uh, laws, you know. So, uh, yes, so uh, I don't think that uh, any hope has diminished that she will no, eventually, uh, but even if she's released, uh, a substantial amount of her life has been Trains yeah, overnight, yeah, you know, it's, it's and, uh, and no amount of money or repatriation that they'll give at the end of the day, you, you or know, whatever they reimburse for. You asked me a question earlier on, is that what does success look like? And I gave you the examples of people coming back after 20 years and whatever, etc. Yes. You know, the day Afia comes back, she see, out of all the cases we used to do in the back in the day, there's so many cases. Now they're all released. Barbara Ahmed and John Walker Lind and uh, Shakir Armour, 15, 16, 17, 18 years. They're all, they're all back. Hmm. Afia is still not. And... When she comes, inshallah, that will be a victory that the whole Ummah will celebrate. Yeah, we're saying when and not if, because no, we I have the dope. I, I, I do say when, I don't say if. Uh, yeah. on, on, on grassroots level, what, what can people do? Uh, you know, the ordinary Muslim citizen, there's always, uh, there's no donations in this case, of course, because mm. the first uh, option people would want to ask, how do I contribute financially? Well, there, there is, I mean, in the, in the sense that people could to the, uh, the, the Justice for Afia Coalition, mm. uh, I think the Free Afia Movement, they are, and they are, of course, funding uh, the legal cases the legal and so forth. Yeah, that, that's because important. it's expensive. Yeah, so that's happening, Alhamdulillah, and, and, and it's always been, that's always been around. But really, what can people do is that, of course, you know, the first important thing is dua. And when you do the dua, you do it in the middle of the night and you encourage your, your imams, encourage your khatib, Mention Afia Siddiqui by name, mm. mention her on the Eid Khutbah, mention her so she's not forgotten. And that's really important that, that, that we remind one another. The second thing is that people, see we're seeking witnesses in Afghanistan. Mm. So what we've done is that we, we're, we're doing some media, people in Afghanistan, please come forward. There's no repercussion on you, the Emirate, like Emirate will protect you. Protect Nothing, you. We just need... No intimidation. Exactly. We just need you to come forward and say, look, we know this, we're going to help you. And some people did. Mm. So those sorts of things, if those who are connected to the Afghan community, past or present, uh, can talk to them about this and reignite the subject. And to speak about it in the media, speak about it in social media. Uh, hashtag Free Afia mm. is, is one of the ones, and Afia Siddiqui uh, is another one. Uh, and to make sure that those who have connections, especially in the Pakistani communities, that they keep pushing their senators. Uh, mm. We've had two senators visit Afia Siddiqui now in prison, which was again unheard of until Clyde came mm. along. So we're, there's, there's, there's moves at different levels that people can do. Those who have political connections, media connections, they can write about it, um, and indeed financial support, all of those things, inshallah, can make a big difference. And Pakistan is undergoing its own 
specific situation right now, the political scenario. We have a former president whose party won whilst he's being incarcerated. Unbelievable, a travesty of justice, but nevertheless they are dealing with that. So one would expect that Pakistan would have been at the forefront fighting for the release of, of its citizen. Obviously, Dick is Pakistani. You, you would have expected Pakistan to be at the forefront, not just of that, of so many things. So many it's the things. only country that's been created in the, you know, uh, recently for the sake of Islam. That's what they're but, saying. Um, Pakistan was the country that handed me over to the Americans. And I can never forget that. They also handed hundreds of other people without charge, without trial, for money. And that was President Musharraf. Yes. And Pakistan has damaged its reputation by warring against the people in Waziristan for the past 20 years, um, and it needs to fix its own house. And the way to start off is get your daughter back. Mm. At least get your own daughter back. You committed Zulam in the first place by handing her over. Yeah. Because who handed her over to the uh, authorities? It, was, it was, could have been Pakistani It people. was the Pakistani government who handed her to the Americans. And that's the Americans put her in the background, and that's the Americans are the ones who took her. So Pakistan is the prime culprit. So that's the injustice that they did. And yes. that's why they're paying for, for that by having the kind of terminal that they are experiencing. I, remember, I used yeah. to think often, you know, when we used to make, I used to make dua against the people who handed us over. Yeah, al-Madlum. Yeah, the Prophet said, al-Madlum. al-Madlum. Yes. Imagine Afia's hands raised up against you in the middle of the night. Right. You, will have, you will have endless uh, uh, exactly. nights and of problems and they did. nights. And they did. Pakistan as a nation suffered so badly for a war that was not of its making. They, they shouldn't have involved themselves in a, in someone else's war. They shouldn't have. I'm sure that our listeners in the rest of the world, they're keeping Afia in, a, in, a, in, in their du'as. People are contributing. Anything else we can do for a cause? Uh, it's not uh, criminalized here. Yeah, we can speak out. So no, every absolutely, case, absolutely. Please, I mean, just make it make it trend again. We did it uh, for Mandela. He was yes. incarcerated 20 yes. years. Even in the UK, you people, you know, mm-hmm. used to speak about uh, yeah. Nelson Mandela. Indeed. The rest of the world spoke about it and eventually he was released. Yes. So why couldn't the same uh, thing be done for, for uh, Absolutely, absolutely can. And the momentum that we had. Yeah. I was a youngster during those days. We had momentum, we went to the streets. It's you know, a simple question to ask. Why does a woman get 86 years for a, an alleged crime that everybody else gets five years for? Mm. What's the reason? That alone is unanswered, alone is yes. Yeah. You know, it's a red flag. Yeah. So uh, I think it'd be because of a strength, you've mentioned the strength of a movement, and uh, I think that uh, she was set up for a specific thing, to take the fall for something. She was the, the reason why she was set up for is because they believed she was somebody big in the beginning. That's why they handed her over. They realized that she wasn't. And after five years of torture and abuse, and that the movement that was created to support Afia was so huge in Pakistan, millions on the streets done by her sister Fozia, that the Pakistanis now became extremely embarrassed. And we believe that somebody had decided that, you know what, let's just make an excuse, say she's a suicide bomber, get a shot, mm. and it's all over. To but save themselves and be able themselves. And had it not been for that tailor, she'd have been shot. That is indeed said, you know, that we still need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala release her, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring to book all those people yeah, behind um, who yeah. plotted her and robbed her yeah, and yeah. stripped her of her life in a dignity, in a izzah. Uh, yeah, we yeah. know incidents in history, six recorded incidents where the first one, Rasulullah fought for the freedom of a single woman mm-hmm. when a Jew wanted to sexually molest a Zahabia. And there's even Hajaz the Butcher himself mm-hmm. who went out and fought and waged jihad just to have a single lady freed. 
from the, uh, uh, that was imprisoned by the enemies of Islam. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, uh, many other uh, incidents as Not well, you know. Mm -hmm. There are six at least recorded yes, in history. Yes. Uh, but uh, being at the forefront was our Rasulullah Wasallam. I just feel that today there's not these type of leaders that will fight, let alone for the freedom of a single woman. There were so many people in Guantanamo Bay, how many actually fought for their release? Who was behind the fight? Who pushed for those prisoners to be released? Yeah. So the world becomes small when, uh, when, when the, the rights of Muslims are violated. Indeed. It is as if we are third grade citizens. We don't exist yeah. in, in the judiciary or, or, or civil law or international law, it doesn't apply to us as Muslims. It applies to every other uh, human being on the face of the earth, mm -hmm. but it does not uh, uh, apply to us. Yeah. What advice would you like to give uh, listeners in South Africa with regards to all these draconian laws that are being uh, implemented throughout the globe? I know there's certain places we cannot travel to, certain mm -hmm. places that is uh, forbidden yeah. for us, you know. And generally, people are outspoken people, mm -hmm. uh, like like yourself being a, uh, an activist, you, you will be termed uh, uh, a human activist, you know. So, I mean, in, as, as a kind of final statement to, to your listeners, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, we gave the examples of the Prophet ﷺ doing jihad and the Sahaba and so forth, but he also said, Aftalu jihad kalimatu haq and the sultan in jair. Best jihad is to speak the word of truth in front of uh, an oppressor. Now, why is that the best jihad? Because if you're in the field, you've got a sword, you've got a shield, you can defend yourself and you can attack, you, you, you can defend yourself. You've got spears in today's world, you've got you know, armored cars, tanks, you've got some chance. When you speak a word of truth in front of a tyrant, you have no chance. Once he comes and grabs you and puts you away, you are just one single individual. And he is an entire government and a force. And the one that speaks out against him requires a great amount of inner strength. And his struggle is massive. Because he's going to be sending in his goons to come and get you mm. with guns and so forth. When silence they come and take, you. And silence you, take you away in front of your family, threaten your family and so forth. And you can't do anything. Mm. And that takes a strength that, you know, I pray many of us can build up upon ourselves. So my advice to people is that, look, you're you not... You think that we still have such yeah, people around? I, I believe we've always... There will always be a group of my ummah, the Prophet mm. that will be uh, victorious upon the truth. Well, if we Dive it's a small group. Yeah, a small group. Asabat and ummati right? Always be. Another hadith said that, uh, who, who are they? And one says, Bayt al-Maqdis wa aknafi Bayt al-Maqdis. So we know that there will always be around Al-Aqsa and there's a group of who are always doing that. But then what about those who speak the word of truth mm. and pay a price for it sometimes? Because the Prophet also said, the, the Sayyid the shuhada Hamdat ibn Abdul Muttalib. And then the one who spoke a word of truth and enjoined good and forbade evil upon him, and he was killed. So he's the highest rank of the shaheed. So this is really a high rank, because you're next to Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib for speaking a word of truth. So let us develop this. We often say, okay, we can't be over there in all those far off lands. Why? Okay, don't be. You can still get the highest rank of a shaheed, but the condition is weaponize your that voice. you have to weaponize your voice against evil, against the dhul. Now come along and say, okay, now say I can't do jihad. Yes, you can. You can do a very big jihad, but are you prepared I think it? people's perception is only the physical jihad, picking up the gun in. They forget there's other types also when people yeah. like us, when we do, no one of us is access to Gaza. Yes. Let's face it. Yes, yes. So does it mean we keep quiet? Does it no, mean exactly. uh, we only resort to dua? We can't. What about the plight of the Palestinian people? Exactly. So, you know, I concur that somehow we need to weaponize our voices, but that is also risky because people fear retribution. Government might uh, come down on them. 
So they might be incarcerated, but that is the sacrifice that, that well, Islam requires from you, us. You know, look, look, I mean, we, we can't not address that part. We're in South Africa now, right? Mostly a non-Muslim South African government presents whatever your view on the ICJ is or not. They took them to the courts. Mm. Your question is, what did the Muslims do? Like, what did the Mus did Muslims do anything? Any of the anything, anything. Yeah, any, not, nobody did anything. I mean, and so this and this is a court that its judgment in the end, even if it's put down, has no teeth. Mm. It can't do anything. It's right? a toothless dog. It's a toothless. So, but it's a gesture. You have to ask yourself, well, did I say something at the highest seat of power that I risked my neck at it? And if they say, you know, they're going to put me away for it, alhamdulillah, if I'm getting put away to struggle, at least to try to speak out against this evil, then I'm getting, just be totally selfish, I'm getting the greatest reward. My Rasulullah, just, just, just for speaking out. My Rasulullah, who I say, I follow his sunnah in everything else, in how I look, I follow his sunnah. In how I talk, I follow his sunnah. In, in how, I dress, how I do many rakahs, I do so. But when it comes to speaking out, no, I don't follow his sunnah there. Because that, yeah, that's sacrifice. There's no sacrifice in growing your beard and, and, and the focus when everybody else is doing it. Right. So, Muslim 52, 52, I call them Arab countries. Sometimes I use the word Islamic countries. 52 countries, people on the brink of starvation. And, and you know, literally dying in 2024 out of hunger. And the world is watching this on Facebook, social media, and every other platform. And we became so desensitized sometimes we don't even watch anymore. Well, you know, Sheikh, one thing I was going to tell you, right, we, we're seeing this now, and because it's the nature and the frequency of social media, we can see all of this now happening. But just a few years ago, I mean, I just came back from Afghanistan, there's like 150,000 people got killed there in the last war. And then before that, a million people. And if you go to Iraq, another million people. And Syria? And Syria, uh, 500,000 people, right? And then uh, so many more in, in Somalia and so forth. And whilst our, we, should, our, we should have a special connection, to Beit al-Maqdis and what's around it, and that's what Palestine is. But we should, the Prophet ﷺ said that the blood of a Muslim is more worthy and more worth than the Kaaba itself. You said right? of a Muslim, not yeah. a specific Yeah, no, a Muslim, yes. any Muslim, right? And we'll go every year, maybe several times a year to go walk around the Kaaba and do our rituals and so forth and spend the money on it. But come on, how about you spend that money in the defense of whom the Prophet ﷺ said that person's blood is more worth than the Kaaba? Yeah, what about the Uyghur Muslims? What about the Kashmiri Muslims? Yeah. What about the people of Rohingya? There's so many other uh, d d different uh, uh, ethnicities, yeah. Muslims out there, but we're not highlighting their plight. Now, that is my yeah. problem. We, we have to speak about Gaza, but we shouldn't forget about the rest you know, of the, the Ummah. You know, one of the things that I hear, when I hear Uyghurs speaking about Gaza... They Uyghur, speak about Gaza. Yes, when I hear Uyghurs speaking about Gaza, and they talk about that these are our brothers, and if I, if I could find a way to go and help to liberate my brothers, I would. And his own family have been forced to become atheist. You in see, China. In China. Mm -hmm. And his pain, you can't even under, imagine. Nobody can imagine. You, you know, Shahada, if they had Shahada, alhamdulillah, straight to Jannah. What about if they become uh, atheists? There's no it's hope. Universe. Right? It's straight so, to Jannah. And yet somebody like that, imagine his pain. And then imagine his feeling towards the people of Palestine. Right? That, kind of, that kind of connection to the Ummah is if we have people like that, this Ummah will never be destroyed, ever. Uh, the problem is that we are reactionary sometimes, mm. and we say, well, it's, uh, we we, if we support one, then we can't support the other. No, 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 you support the whole lot. It's a package deal, as they say. So it comes to one question. We are the men of this Ummah. I think it boils down to that. Men, men not 
our men who to physically looks like men, but men who can fulfill the position of men. Allah called the Sahaba, Razan in the Quran, Minina Rijal. He said there is believers, but from the believers there are men also. So we are believers, but that's one of my favorite verses in the whole Quran. Mine also did so I mentioned. And because that verse says, Faminum man qada nahba. And those the ulama say, Minhum man qada nahba are shuhada. They've already gone and they're shuhada. And those who are still waiting, they remain steadfast upon the truth. They never changed. One iota. And so who are those people? You'll find, I'll tell you where you find them. Mm. You'll find them in the graves. Mm. You'll find them in the jails. You'll find them in the field. And you'll find them um, where nobody knows their name. But Allah knows them. Allah knows who's the true warriors. Yeah. You know, that Allah subhanahu wa grant victory to the people of Gaza Ameen. and a grant uh, martyrdom to all those who've passed away. Ameen. They will never be uh, excluded from our du'as. If they would have been any way, I come from Cape Town, which is considered a militant hmm. place, you know. Yes. Uh, people there would give anything to go and die for the sake of Gaza. I always tell them that you have to. You can die, but you have to love Islam also. Don't forget to love Islam. Yeah, yeah. We all are ready to die for Islam, which but is the easiest. But very few are actually ready to live for Islam. Yes. Uh, I think you would agree with me Absolutely. on that, you know. Absolutely. So that's why we tell the listeners also. Yeah. So they, they're not excluded from out of us. The Uyghur Muslims, they're not excluded. Mm. Just we feel hopeless that there's nothing we can do yeah. at this point in time. And I think that weakness we can attribute to our own uh, love for this world. That uh, love to stay long in this world and not to, uh, to, to, to disturb the apple cart. To, to take away our comfort and you know th these type of things so until that condition comes upon us so we make do Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us you know uh, this uh, tonight uh, uh, our respected listeners right here on Marqa Sahaba voice of the Ahlu Sunnah we were very very fortunate uh, to have hosted uh, Muazzam all the way uh, coming from Kabul see the Afghanistan I thought he came directly I thought you came directly from the UK uh, but he made a U-turn via Kabul and then ended up here in Johannesburg and we wish him, you know, he's going to be here for a couple of days. With Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, grant him all the, the health. And uh, he also received some news uh, from his family members. Uh, that side, someone passed away, make dua. Amen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, grant his, I think it's his, your My cousin. cousin yes. His cousin passed away. This is just before the interview. So Allah grant his cousin Jannah to fill those behaviors hisab without any reckoning into Amen. all the other deceased from the Ummah of Rasulullah. So yes. It's not easy having received that news and then being so, you know, I have to comment you, still being so composed, I can see you're a global figure. You just received bad news of someone you were close to, a family member, and then still conducting this interview uh, completely unfazed, that, uh, detaching yourself emotionally from that, just to give the listeners that, the perspective on someone who you call the most oppressed um, prisoner in the world. So for that alone, we make dua, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala must take you from strength to strength. Exactly. And may you be the fighter that will fight for the liberation and freedom of all those who are incarcerated throughout the globe. May Allah put khair and barakah in your life and grant you a long lifespan. And that was it for our segment tonight here on Marqa Sahaba, voice of the Ahlu Sunnah. Don't forget to make dua for the cousin of, uh, of our brother, you know, our friend and our, our loyal uh, Muslim uh, all the way from the UK, uh, 
brother Muazzam Obeg, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take him back home safely also so he can continue to serve the ummah. And don't forget to make dua for Afia Siddiqui, those who know about these funds that has been established, uh, you have to cover her legal costs, etc. Then be generous when it comes to these things. It's very, very, litigation is always expensive uh, and, and it's, it's, it's forever ongoing. The system has been designed to milk you financially until you give up hope and loss or hope. You've heard the entire story exclusively for the first time. Many people didn't know that uh, even uh, uh, one child passed away, you know. So make dua Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala release her from uh, the prison as well. Until we meet again, from me, your host, Mufti Ibrahim, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuhu.